I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in, a, in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. All right, thank you, Pastor Mike, for reading that. That's going to be the beginning of our passage this morning. We're actually moving through the opening part of chapter 11. Uh, If you're joining with us today, we have been going through a study in Ecclesiastes, and um, we've been seeing this theme that Solomon describes life with this word vanity. And that word vanity isn't meant to be just simply waste. A lot of times you come to Ecclesiastes and you're like, oh man, everything's a waste and this is such a downer of a book. It's got this idea of it's like a breath or a vapor and to go after life. Um, just life here under the sun is going to be like going after a breath or vapor that you really can't get your arms around, and there's a measure of frustration to that. And so Solomon has been discussing that and then leading us through different areas of life. This morning we're going to look at another one, but before we do that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer again and ask him for his guidance as we go through this passage today. God, we thank you for your word. It's inspired. It has been purposefully given to us from you. And this is our bread for life. And so we ask that you would help us to receive it. Please nourish our souls this morning. I pray that by your spirit you would apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what I've enjoyed about this study in Ecclesiastes is that he continues to think about life from many different angles. And not only does he consider the angle, but he continues to bore in and take one or two more steps than what we would ordinarily think to take. So he's talked about the pursuit of pleasure under the sun as kind of an end-all to people's lives. So if you're pursuing pleasure and that's your main goal in life, he tells us that that is going to be vanity. It's like trying to catch breath. It's like trying to catch vapor. But then he comes back and says, those who fear the Lord, you should enjoy life. So you're holding on to something different as your treasure. Over here, you're holding on to life as an end all, looking for that to be the treasure. But somebody who walks with God is holding to him as their treasure. And now God says, I've given you life. Step into it and enjoy it. There's two different ways of looking at this. He's talked about God's timing in life. How there's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to build up. A time to tear down. A time for war. A time for peace. God ordains all of the times in life. He's looked at issues of injustice in the world. He's also looked at areas of leadership, and he has come back to leadership several times. Today is, again, a a landing, if you will. He's bringing the plane in and landing on this topic of leadership. We were talking in the little meeting before the service that 
Solomon has this repetitive pattern of coming back to themes. And you've heard the pastor who preached the same message three or four times to the congregation, and somebody came up after the fourth sermon that was preached and said, do you realize that this is the fourth time you've preached this? And the pastor responded and said, yep, and when you get it, I'll move on. Um, Solomon seems to be doing that in so many different ways. He keeps coming back to the same theme. So if you're sensing that, trust the rhythm and repetitiveness of, of Scripture. We need to come back to these themes. This morning, specifically, he's coming back to the area of how we respond to disappointing leadership, um, something that's been relevant for thousands of years. Solomon has addressed our relationship to the king back in chapter 8. He showed us how we're supposed to keep our oath to the king. Um, He's shown us how God has sovereignly ordained the king. And now today he's actually boring in on what about when the leadership, and I'm not just talking about governmental, but perhaps your boss at work, um, perhaps another authority in your life, well, how do you respond when you have disappointing leadership? Before we jump into the passage, you need to know two things before we start. Number one is this. Uh, Sidney Gradanus in his commentary said, of all the passages in Ecclesiastes, this one is probably the most difficult to interpret and preach. And then Martin Luther comes along and he says, Solomon makes some really harsh transitions in this passage. Commentaries are frustrated with this. And I'm giving you a warning. As we go through this, or if you've read this passage this week, you may have experienced a measure of frustration or you might experience it today because of the way that Solomon moves from one story to a proverb, which leads me to the second observation, is that Solomon is using different types of communication in this particular thought. He'll tell a story and then he'll give you like four or five proverbs. And then he'll tell another story and give you maybe eight to 10 proverbs and then an imperative and then more proverbs and then another imperative. And you're like, just keep it simple for me. Tell me what you want me to know and then I'll move on from there. But this is inspired scripture. And Solomon is using different types of communication or different styles of communication, which was more common in Solomon's era, but it's our duty to wrestle with it and see how the truth should be applied. So just know that this might be a measure of frustration as you look at this passage and work through it. Two points to the sermon this morning. Number one is wisdom described and then wisdom applied. Wisdom described and wisdom applied. So let's move with wisdom described. We're looking at chapter nine, verse 13, where Solomon says that he has seen wisdom. So Pastor Mike read this earlier. He says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. Okay, Solomon, what did wisdom look like? You saw an example. Well, in verse 14, he describes a little city. And think back like 1,500 years before Christ this little city, and they are met by a great king. This king is on his horse. He's got the flag of his country with him. There are soldiers that are marching down the road with their metal helmets, with their metal breastplates, with their swords. And they have gone from city to city and have trounced the city. And now they're coming up to this small city. Solomon is careful to describe it as a little city with a few men in it. 
Uh, you might think of one of those cities that has those pine trees that were just cut. The branches are off and they're all like these little pine spikes that are sticking up around the city. The city is surrounded by this king who builds great siege works against it. Perhaps he's brought his weapons of war. Uh, there's no way that this little city can go toe-to-toe with this great king who has built these great siege works against it. But Solomon has told us, I've seen wisdom. So in verse 15, he goes on to say, but there in that little city was found in it a poor, wise man. Ooh, this is getting good. Well, let's see what happened. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. End of story. No, Solomon, come on. There's all the good potential for a story right there. What did this poor wise man do to stop this great king who marched with his army up to the city and sieged it with great siege works? Tell me, Solomon. And he doesn't. That's part of the frustration, right? Uh, Maybe this poor wise man had everybody fake leprosy. And those people wrapped in rags with blood on their rags and white spots on their skin just looked out over that little gate so that the king could see him. And the king's like, that leprosy could wipe out my whole army. I don't, want, I don't know what happened. But we know that this poor wise man delivered the city. And Solomon's purpose is simply this. I, I want to highlight the value of wisdom. Uh, wisdom brings deliverance. Wisdom delivers people out of peril, and because it can deliver people out of peril, it should be part of your life. In verse 16, he says, I say that wisdom is better than might. So here's a comparison. And then again in verse 18, he says, wisdom is better than the weapons of war. So there's this idea of strength here, that wisdom is better than strength. And then right in the middle of those two, verse 17, he says that the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Okay, so now here's a contrast. Wisdom is better than might. It's better than strength. But I want you to know this, that the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. What would be an indicator as to whether or not you are a person who's living by God's wisdom or living by your own human strength? Well, here's an indicator that Solomon gives. Are you a shouter? Are you constantly using the strength of your voice to domineer over people and get your own way? That's what the ruler is doing and people are just reeling back. But Solomon says, I want you to know that there is something better than that. There is wisdom. Wisdom delivers. Let's take a step back and look at more scriptures to see characteristics of wisdom. Three characteristics of wisdom that I want you to see. The first one is found in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We could ask the question, what is a biblically wise person characterized by? A biblically wise person is characterized by fearing the Lord. He's focused on the Lord. He's responding to the Lord. He's revering the Lord as the center of his life. 
Secondly, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Jesus speaks to a group of people and he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So on one hand, you've got this person who reveres the Lord and they're walking in biblical wisdom because their life is centered around the Lord. They are reverencing him. And then Jesus comes along and says this, you have to be listening to and obeying my words. A life, is, a life of wisdom is one that is surrendered to the wisdom of Christ himself. Now there's two characters in history that really embody um, contrasting views. First was Aristotle. He believed that wisdom was found in intelligence. So the more intelligence you get, the more wise you must be, which is what our Western world generally buys into. If you have PhDs or multiple PhDs, you must be a wise person. But then there was Augustine who came after Christ brilliant and intelligent in his own right, but his life was a mess. And what he came to realize was that Jesus was teaching that true wisdom wasn't found in intelligence, but true wisdom was found in surrender to him. You see, it's not about us having smarts, it's about who we're dependent on. A math teacher once told us, it's not the person who knows the most, it's the person who can go and find the most answers. And what Augustine was saying is that for the Christian, we know that all of our answers are found in the true source of wisdom, Christ himself. So here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 22 and 24. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified and a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, here's who Christ is. Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. So here's a third characteristic of wisdom. It's found in trusting Christ and believing in him as wisdom. Okay, so let's just consider this. Wisdom is characterized by revering God. Wisdom is characterized by biblical truth that Christ has spoken. And wisdom is embodied in Christ himself. And so in all of these, you're seeing a life that is wholly centered on Jesus. You're finding a life that is wholly dependent on him. And you can go back to, what about the intelligence part? Do I have PhDs? It doesn't really matter. There are wise old people who may have gotten a sixth grade education and that was it, and fellows and gals over here that have gone to the Ivy League schools and have PhDs, and who are you going to take in terms of wisdom here? It's the one who trusts Christ no matter how many PhDs they've got. And if they've got them, great, but are they trusting Christ or not? So young people, the most important thing for you right now is not A pluses on your report cards or a high SAT score. The most important thing for you right now is, is your heart surrendered to Jesus Christ? 
If your heart is surrendered to Jesus Christ, you are more wise than the valedictorian, salutatorian, whateveratorian in your school. Following Christ is the place of wisdom. And then parents, what are we seeing? What are our kids seeing, I should say? Are they seeing moms and dads who are wholly surrendered to Jesus Christ and saying, the source of wisdom is not found in us. The source of wisdom is found in God's word here. A person who fears the Lord, who trusts God's word, who is following Christ, is a person of wisdom. Coming back to Ecclesiastes 9 now. There is an important characteristic that needs to be seen in the area of foolishness. Foolishness spoils the progress of wisdom. Foolishness can easily spoil the progress of wisdom. Look look what he says here in verse 10. And again, this is part of the frustration that we have when we're reading these passages. He goes from telling a story now to a proverb. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And you're like, what in the world is this dead flies thing all about? Okay, it helps to know a little bit of history or cultural um, just sort of cultural understanding of this picture here. What's going on with the perfumer's ointment? You need to know that in the ancient Near East, it took months, if not years, to gather herbs, spices, flowers, and extract the oils and make perfume or ointment out of that. It took a long process for a little flask to be gathered that smelled wonderful. You put that flask up on the hearth, maybe, Along comes a horsefly smelling something sweet, gets stuck in the ointment, and you don't see it because it's up there on the hearth, and all it takes is for a day of that horsefly rotting in your ointment that took years to collect, that horsefly spoils your ointment in the process of a day. And what's Solomon saying? He's saying that all of the work that goes into making things right in a person's life All of the wisdom that a person can be exercising can easily be undone in a moment by one decision of folly. All it takes is one fool to act in foolishness to quickly undo the wisdom of many hard years of work. All it takes is one fool to weigh in on a good conversation that's been going on for an hour and totally derail it from where it should be going. It's like one bad apple among many good apples can easily rot and contaminate everything. And so Solomon is saying, hey, just beware that there is a weightiness to folly. And so he keeps moving here with more Proverbs here. A wise, man, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Place of right was just the place of honor. Place of left was a place of destruction or foolishness. Verse three, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense and he says to everyone that he is a fool. He's shouting his head off. And so Solomon is just describing here what folly looks like in comparison to wisdom. Remember, wisdom delivers, but now folly leads to destruction. He appears to shift gears here in verse 4 with an imperative, a command, something that you can get your hands on. And now we're going to move into point 2. Point 2 is simply wisdom applied. Wisdom applied, especially in the area of disappointing leadership. First, stay calm. Look what verse 4 says. If the anger of a ruler rises against you, 
Well, you can be a fool and shout off your mouth, or do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to the rest. This could be your government leaders. I think there's room for this to be anyone who is an authority over you, such as a boss. This ruler rises against you or against your cause. It's like the poor man in the city now against the king. The odds are stacked against you. And what does Solomon say when you're rising up against or the ruler is rising up against you? He says in verse 4, Do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Do we see this truth described in Scripture elsewhere? We do. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. He decreed that all the wise men were to be put to death because they couldn't understand his dream. What did Daniel do? He remained calm and turned to the Lord. Think about Jesus. He's standing before Pontius Pilate, and he's on the receiving end of Roman and Jewish hatred. And what did he do? He remained calm, trusting that his father was in control. This is a picture of calmness. As we look at many of our leaders or many of the authorities in our lives making decisions out of foolishness, perhaps even ruining the work of previous generations, what does a fool do? A fool shouts out off his mouth. A fool vents his anger. What does a wise person do? A wise person just fears God and stays calm. Let your calmness be a reflection of true wisdom. You know that a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words, they stir up anger in people. Are you known for shooting off your mouth? Or are you known for fearing God and staying calm? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, here's Jesus on the spot in front of disappointing leadership. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what Jesus did. Now, can't you see the person who is standing for what's right and just so tired of the fools shouting off their mouths and getting away with sin that that person stands up and just says, but I had to say something. I had to do something. I had to get somebody's attention. It's playing to the hand of a fool here. Jesus' example of wisdom is that he continues to entrust himself to his father. Here's a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. He hears the words of Jesus, and he does them. Young people, there's a lot of yelling that goes on in the world, and I don't know everything that goes on behind the doors at home. Perhaps there's a parent who's a screamer or a yeller. This passage speaks to you for a moment. When the heat of the argument starts up, and if you have a parent that is a yeller, realize this, that you should walk in God's wisdom. Don't play the part of a fool by rising up and shouting back. Don't play the part of a fool by knocking over furniture and saying, since they did it, I can. 
Don't throw the plates. Don't kick in the door. What do you do? You, you hear the screaming and you say, okay, God, I'm revering you. I'm trusting your word. I'm in a relationship with Christ. My life is given over to you. You fear God and you stay calm. If there's abuse, if there's hitting, there's punching, tell another parent, call 911. But in this area of voices that are rising, fear God and stay calm. If it's at work, fear God and stay calm. If it's with your government leaders, fear God and stay calm. This is wisdom applied. Second, guard your words. Guard your words. And this is really verses 5 through 20. So we're going to move sort of quickly through this next section. We'll skip along in these Proverbs here. He says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. Another picture here for us. As it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places. So the high place is like the throne. It's the place of authority. It's the boss. And the rich sit in the low place. Okay, so ordinarily speaking, you want the successful people who have proven themselves to be hard workers and have found solutions. They've got money in their pocket. You want them to be leading. Okay, this is a general picture here. But he says, I've seen fools sitting in the high places and the ones who succeeded in the low places. Verse 7, I've seen the slaves on horses and the princes walking on the ground like slaves. What's he describing? He's describing a backward society, something that is flipped upside down. Well, how did it happen? Here are the Proverbs that he just starts rattling off. He who digs in a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Okay, so somebody digs a pit in the backyard. They never cover it up. Eventually, you're going to fall into that pit. A snake hides itself in a wall, especially a stone wall, and somebody who foolishly knocks over the wall without examining it could have that viper come out and just snag him. Verse 9, he who quarries stones is hurt by them. Here's somebody who digs into a mine eventually that digging can result in the cave collapsing. He says, he who splits logs is endangered by them. Splinters can be flying. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. And so here's somebody who's got an axe that is completely dull. And instead of taking time to sharpen it, a wise decision to sharpen it, they just keep whacking with this dull axe trying to cut wood and nothing's going forward with it. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. And so Solomon just keeps peppering us with all of these different situations that could have wisely been avoided. All of these calamities could have been avoided. And he's saying, so it is with a society that is upside down. I saw this in society. I saw a society that was upside down. Decisions Decisions that could have been made otherwise have turned everything on their head. And that's why Solomon says at the end of verse 10 that wisdom helps one to succeed. You can walk in foolishness or you can walk in wisdom, revering God, trusting his word, having a relationship with Christ. So how should we apply this up to this point? Just a couple of things. Take a little breather as we're going through all this. Number one is... Simply realize that societies are turned upside down by foolishness. 
just realize that societies are turned upside down by foolishness. We see this unraveling in front of us all the time. We see people shouting off their mouths all the time. This trial that took place this last week, you know that there's going to be people on both sides, and instead of fearing God and staying calm, foolishness raises its head, and you're going to see it going forward. But number two, we're called to practice wisdom. That's part of verse 10. Let's keep moving on through these Proverbs as Solomon peppers them for us. Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Okay, that's great. We understand that. He's fearing the Lord. He's speaking wisely. Now he moves back to the fool here for the next few verses. So let's go through the descriptions of a fool here. But the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. Uh, Verse 14, a fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? So fools have this no shortage of words. Whatever is on their minds comes spewing out, especially when something's bothering them. And now in verses 15 and 16, or 16 and following, Solomon brings it back to rulers and kings. So He was at the rulers and kings. Now he's bringing it back. He says in verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Pretty easy to understand. Your ruler is acting like a kid, and all of your princes are just throwing parties, not because they've won a war, but just because that's what they enjoy doing, the early hours of the morning. Verse 17, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Okay, so they've gone out, they've won a war. Happy are you when there is a party for strength that has happened, not for drunkenness, not just people who want to have a party and get together because they're in power. That's not what you want to see. You want to see parties for victories. Verses 18 and 19. How does foolish, um, how do rulers ruin their kingdom? Verse 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence or laziness, the house leaks. It's another negative statement here. Verse 19, bread is made for laughter. Here's the party scene. Wine gladdens life. And then look at this last one. Doesn't this sort of answer a lot of questions about where we are as a society? Money answers everything. If any problems show up, just throw money at the problem. That will take care of everything. And Solomon is saying, what a foolish way of governing people. So he's giving us these snippets. And you can see that there are these ways that you tie these snippets into everyday life. Okay, now where does he go? Verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich. Don't give in to your impulses, folks, and urges to speak down about the king. That's not our place. And it's interesting why he says this. At the end of verse 20, he says, For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. You've heard the saying, well, a little birdie told me that you said this or that, or a little birdie came to me and I heard about this. Solomon is urging us to practice wisdom by refraining from disrespecting, disappointing leaders. Refrain from using words 
that have a way of coming back to you. Perhaps not just you, but perhaps also your testimony. So you say you're a Christian? We all say we're Christians. And then five or ten of us play the fool during the week. What does that do for our Christian testimony? What's God's wisdom instead? Be careful with your words, but as you travel through Scripture, you see another application in which we have a handle. Here is how we can respond to disappointing leadership in our lives. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So young people, adults alike, no matter where you're at, in all of life, here's the question that must be answered. How can I proactively respond to disappointing leadership? I can stay calm and I can pray for them. That's God's wisdom. I can stay calm and I can pray for them. And so just give this some thought that the next time my impulses and my urges are wanting to scream out and saying, who in the world is running this show? What in the world were they possibly thinking, whether it's the higher-ups at the office where Corporate is making decisions and you just feel like they've got no clue of what's going down on the floor where you're at. Whether it's an authority like the government or whether it's even a parent in your life, just pray. This would be God's wisdom. Get away into your bedroom. Go to a quiet place. And instead of giving vent to your rage, reach out to the Lord and say, God, please help. I need to pray for President so-and-so and Governor so-and-so and Mayor so-and-so and my teacher and my parents. So the challenge here is whether or not we are going to trust God's wisdom. We get so emotionally caught up in the disappointment of bad leadership, whatever it might be, because it affects our lives at varying levels, we get so caught up, and the question is, are you going to trust God's wisdom here? Solomon gives us one more step. I think it's an important step. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Get on with life. It's interesting. He talks about disappointing leadership throughout chapter 10, and then he moves on into chapter 11, and the way that he moves on to chapter 11 is a message itself. So verses 1 through 6, let's look at what he says. Cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Okay, so here's this, again, this maybe frustrating phrase, and you're thinking, what in the world does casting bread on water have to do? If I did that, it's just going to get soggy, sink to the bottom, and maybe a Fish will eat it. Um, culturally, people harvested their fields. They brought their wheat in. Now it's time to go sell the wheat. How does trade take place in the Mediterranean world? Well, here's a boat here that's going across the Sea of Galilee. Here's a, a few boats that are going across the Mediterranean. Okay, cast your bread upon the waters. Put them in the boats. Get on with life. You've got things that need to be sold. Send your commodities out and sell them. 
And he says, you know, be careful. Spread them out among seven or eight. Why? Because a boat might go down to the bottom of the sea. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. That's basically the gist here. Be wise about this. In verse 4, he talks about keep getting on with life. Let me back up to verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. There are things that are fixed in life. So verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. He's describing a person that's not getting on with life. Here's the field that needs to be planted. Cast some seed out there. But the problem is, if the wind is blowing harshly and I'm casting seed out, it's going to blow all my seed all over the place. And if there's a cloud on the horizon, a storm might be coming, and after I cast my seed into the ground, a storm might come and just pummel the ground, and all that seed is going to end up in one corner of the field. And he's saying this, that the person who is constantly just worried about a little breeze in the air or a little cloud on the horizon is never going to get on with life. There's always reasons that can cause somebody to stop. And he says, just get over it and get moving with life. So he continues down in verse 5. You do not know the way of the spirit comes to the bones of, in the womb of a woman with a child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. He's appealing to God's control over all things. So verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So go out in the morning, plant your fields. In the evening, do your chores. Keep moving along with life. Okay. How many times do we get all bound up by disappointing leadership? And we're like, oh, I just cannot move on from this. This person has ruined my life. Young people, an authority comes into your life and you are just racked with anger towards them. You feel like, I can't move on. And Solomon says this, fear God, stay calm, keep moving forward. The temptation is to give in to your fears and anxieties that life will never be the same because of this disappointing leader. Nope, go out to your fields, plant your crops. In the evening, do your chores Keep moving on. This is Solomon's message for us. Disappointing leadership is going to be there. But continue to move forward. Now I want to close with this. He's saying apply wisdom. How is it that we should get wisdom? Let's look at three ways here in conclusion of how Christians should be getting wisdom. Number one, we already mentioned this earlier, is the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul writes this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice the characteristics of these sacred writings. The scripture, what is able to make you wise? It's the word of God. 
Be committed to the word of God. So there's a lot of thoughts that you have about how things should be done. What does the word of God say? Keep coming back to the word of God as your source of authority. As you listen to and obey the word of God, you are bringing everything into relationship with God and trusting him. This is God's wisdom to you. So trust it. Second, we touched on this. Prayer to God. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Again, let me just say, the next time you feel the frustration of disappointing leadership, ask God for wisdom. Spend time in your prayer closet asking him for wisdom because God says he gives it generously to those who ask. Number three and last, be willing to be a fool. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. This is where the Christian life lands in response to the world. And Paul is writing to the church of Corinth there and the people of Corinth the Jews the Gentiles that are there the unbelievers there the Jews they just want a sign they want a miracle to be done so that they can see that this message is true and the Greeks they want more Aristotle they want more wisdom all of that and Paul keeps coming back to this idea that it's not going to be about your strength and it's not going to be about your PhDs Where is wisdom truly found? It's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But what does the world think about followers of Christ? You're a fool. And so now every Christian has this identity that he must be willing or she must be willing to take on. Am I willing to be a fool for Christ's sake? Am I willing to follow Christ, which looks like folly to the world, but is wisdom from God? Or am I going to be a fool for fool's sake and follow the world? So at the end of this sermon this morning, we're faced with this question. Who are you following? Are you following the world and acting the fool? Or are you following Christ? And in Christ, we find our wisdom even if the world calls us fools. This week, beware of disappointing leadership. Follow Christ. Follow his word. Spend time in prayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for wisdom literature that helps us in these unique areas of life. We pray that we would have a heart of humility to respond to your word today. With your heads bowed, will you just take a moment to talk to the Lord in the quietness of your own heart and Perhaps there's an area that you recognize here that you just need to lean into more. 
Talk to the Lord in the quietness of your own heart, perhaps asking him for wisdom, for a right attitude, for remaining calm. I'll come back and pray in just a moment. So God, we ask for your wisdom today. Uh, We need it as we are sojourners and pilgrims in this world. Uh, We pray for the leaders who are over us as we conclude our service. We pray for President Biden this morning and Vice President Harris. We pray for Governor Whitmer. Uh, We ask that you would sovereignly rule over their lives We pray that you would bring joy into their lives, a joy that comes from you. We pray that you would grant them grace to make decisions yet another day. We pray that you'd bring encouragement into their lives. We pray that you'd give them truth to govern with. So we pray for those leaders. In this room, there are many parents who are leaders at home. I pray that you'd grant them wisdom as well. As we respond, Lord, to leadership this week, please keep us from being the world's fool. I pray that we would be known as Christ followers and the world might look at us as foolish, but Lord, there's no better place for us to be than trusting you and keeping in step with your spirit, walking in obedience. So God, we trust your word this morning. Please use it to guide us this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.